You guys enjoying Genesis? Yeah. Chapters 1 through 4 have been really, really rich, really deep. So open your Bibles to chapter 5, like Tim said. We're going to dive into a new section of Genesis. You'll see this throughout the book of Genesis, that there's a phrase that will repeat itself. Uh, and says something along the lines of, in your translation, that these are the records of, and then it'll name a person, and then it'll give a bunch of stories. And that's how you know a new literary section of Genesis is starting. It's kind of organized by generations from this point forward. In fact, this section, starting in chapter 5, is 90% genealogy, which makes me wonder if maybe that's why Pastor Andrew wanted me to come over here and <laughs> preach this particular section. No, no, he's not avoiding the genealogy. He's actually on our Marshall campus this morning and we just did a little swap so he could be with our church family over there. And I get the honor and privilege of being with you today. And I'm excited about that. Uh, he's not avoiding the genealogy. But you and I both know that when we read our Bibles and we come across a genealogy, our tendency is to skip or skim the genealogy, and that's to our detriment because there's really, really good stuff to learn there. I'm calling Genesis 5 like a tombstone genealogy because uh, as opposed to other genealogies in the scripture where so-and-so begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so, where all you see is the front end of someone's life, it's a tombstone genealogy because you actually see both sides in Genesis chapter 5. You see the beginning and the end of someone's life as if Dates inscribed on a tombstone, the year someone was born and the year someone died. But you know the adage about what's inscribed on your tombstone, that the most important thing isn't when you were born or when you died, but what you did with the dash. You heard that one? This is what Genesis 5 is all about, what you do with your dash. Now, we're going to see patterns. This is what we look for when we study genealogy. We're going to see disruptions in the pattern, and we're going to zoom in on those things, taking special note of those. Uh, and what we'll find is that in Genesis 5, the pattern that emerges is the pattern of death. That, there's a huge emphasis on the second date on your tombstone in Genesis chapter 5. But we've got to be asking ourselves not the question, how long until I experience sin's ultimate consequence, but rather, how, despite sin, can my life be consequential? How can my life matter? Can I make the dash really count? That's the question. And the answer from Genesis 5 is a resounding yes. Now, we've come from Chapter 4 and the devastating drama and trauma of murder and immorality through the line of Cain, Adam and Eve's first son, ending with the hopeful lineage of Seth at the end of chapter 4. And now Genesis 5 starts with a reminder all the way from Genesis chapter 1 of the truth and the blessing of humanity's beginning. That you are made by God to represent Him. So look at Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Now you probably notice the patterns from Genesis chapter 1. In fact, it's sort of like an echo 
of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, where we see that, yes, it's God who creates mankind. That God established man. That he created mankind in his image, in his likeness. That he created mankind intentionally gendered, male and female. That he then, as is the whole theme of Genesis, blessed mankind. This is what we see repeated here in Genesis chapter 5. What is the author of Genesis doing? By bringing us back to the beginning. Well, if you were with us the last couple weeks, Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 were really difficult chapters. Because sin entered the world through man's disobedience and rebellion from God. And then things got from bad to worse really, really fast. So Genesis chapter 5 is a way that the author is building a bridge between the creation story and this hopeful lineage of Seth that was introduced to us at the end of chapter 4. It's a way to say that God, despite sin, is now doing a work of redemption. Redeeming humanity from their sinful disobedience. The chasm created by sin between man and God in chapter 3 can be bridged. This is good news. And this is, in fact, the story of the entire Bible. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and its mirror image, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, everything between tells the story of God building this bridge, graciously making a way for sinful humanity to be redeemed and to be restored into a relationship with God again that is eternal in the new creation. This is how the Bible goes. This is what the story it tells. Genesis 5 is sort of like the first structural support in this bridge. Like if God is going to, from Genesis 2 all the way to Revelation 21, build this bridge, Genesis 5 is like the first girder that's driven into the muck of reality of sin. And for 15 verses, from verse 3 to verse 18, it's like God is driving this girder in one generation after another, reminding us, of the consequence of sin. God uses a lineage of people to prove that sin, which is our deviation from God's design, leads to certain death. Observe the formula. If you look with me in your scripture from verse 3 to 18, you'll see this over and over again, that there is a man, first starting with Adam and then his son Seth and -and so-and-so, who was, you know, say, X years old, and then fathers a son, and then lives another certain number of years, and then dies, rinse, and repeat. The same story ending the same way, generation after generation, in fact, ending with the phrase, and he died, as a chorus repeated eight times in Genesis chapter 5 to drive the point home. But the theme of death takes shape in the first generation with the account of the birth of Adam's third son, Seth. Look at verse 3. It says that Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image. Now, if Genesis 5 doesn't do anything else for you today, it ought to make you feel young again, okay? Uh, Did you catch that? Adam was 130 years old when he fathered his third son, Seth. But catch this. It says when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image. Now, you remember what we just talked about, that you were created, made by God to reflect, represent him. 
But here we have a contrast from verses 1 and 2 in, verses, in verse 3. That Adam fathered Seth in Adam's likeness, according to Adam's image. The emphasis is now on Seth's more immediate resemblance to his earthly father as opposed to his heavenly father. Suggesting that, you know, just as every person is created in God's image, Adam's sin is a nature that is passed down from generation to generation. This is a new reality in a world of sin and rebellion from God. The New Testament echoes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which is actually the Apostle Paul teaching Romans who had not been totally immersed in Jewish history or scripture. They were new Christians and he's teaching them about how things came to be, and in fact, the relationship between the first human and then the ultimate human, who is God himself and the man Jesus Christ. And he says about Adam in Romans 5.12, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So for each passing generation, no autopsy is needed. The cause of death is certain. Sin. It's the cause of death. The serpent in chapter 3 tempted Eve to doubt the certainty of death as a consequence to sin. But chapter 5 is like putting eight exclamation marks on what God said in chapter 2 verse 17 when he said, You will certainly die if you eat the fruit, the tree, and the knowledge of good and evil. Exclamation mark after exclamation mark after exclamation mark. Death after death after death after death. All because of sin. And this is the grim reality that we all face. Yet, we do our best to avoid it, right? We spend a ton of time and lots and lots of money trying to avoid death at all costs. Trying to somehow evade for one more day the reality that we all will face. Even if we could extend our lives by, say, hundreds of years, as we read about here with Seth or Enosh or so-and-so, you know what's still true? Our mortality rate is still 100%. Genesis 5 paints a pretty grim picture. But it's not all bad news. Remember how it began. It's a bridge from creation, a reminder that you are made by God to reflect him in his image, that there is hope for you, that God is beginning a redemptive work, restoring mankind to himself despite man's rebellion and expulsion from the garden. Even as it's multiplied in the life of Cain and Cain is driven farther away from God, God is still moving toward humanity, offering redemption to, to them, to us. As the creation story taught us, being made by God and for God it's not just the story of our beginning, it's the story of our ultimate end. It's God's desire and design for our ultimate end, that we would be for Him. 
This is what you may have heard Pastor Andrew refer to as our telos, a Greek word that essentially means our ultimate, the goal of our lives, the end of our lives. What's, whatever your life is aiming at is your telos. And in the creation story, we learn that we're made by God and for God, not just for our beginning, but also for our end. So just because the consequence of sin is that we have to have a second date on our tombstone, it doesn't have to be the story of your dash. Death doesn't have to have the final answer. What makes your life on earth consequential is to realize that you are made to walk with God. You're made by God to walk with Him. Look with me at verses 21 through 24. We get an abrupt but a welcome disruption to the pattern of death in this genealogy. We're introduced to one of my favorite characters in the Bible. His name is Enoch. Verse 21, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after fathering Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And then he was not there because God took him. So you're made by God to represent him, but yet we face this grim reality of death that comes for all of us, except that now Genesis 5 is building on God's redemptive work to say that there is a way to live that supersedes the consequence of death in your life. It's to walk with God. It's as if the whole chapter has been building up to this moment, a drastic contrast in two key ways, if you see in Enoch's story from the pattern of death in chapter 5. First, it's repeated twice that Enoch walked with God to emphasize the importance of that endeavor. Second, it's that he did not die, but was taken by God to show us that there is a contrast to death. That death does not have the final answer. It doesn't have to have the final word. Even as death seemed to be the repeated chorus as if it was the end of every story, now all of a sudden God is saying death doesn't have to be the end. A theme that would be carried on through the entirety of Scripture in God's redemptive work. Now notice, Enoch doesn't walk with God in order to avoid death. In all likelihood, Enoch assumed that death would be a reality for him. He assumed that you know, his days were numbered, but that didn't stop him from choosing God's way to live. Walking with God is how we overcome the consequence of death in our lives. Now, the Hebrew word for walked here is it's reminiscent of the walking God did in the Paradise Garden of Eden. Chapter 3, verse 8, you might remember as the sinful humans were in the garden, God walks toward them and they hear the sound of God in the cool of the day. And what do the humans do? They hide. Enoch reverses the trend. Finally, as God moves towards sinners, there is a sinner who chooses to walk with the God who walks towards sinners. And it changes everything. It changes the way we ought to see even our lives. Now, Enoch's life is also the shortest of all the lives 
mentioned in Genesis chapter 5 in this genealogy, which ought to emphasize to us that a consequential life isn't measured in our quantity of years, but the quality of our relationship with God. So how do we walk with God? I was thinking about walking. Uh, We like to go on walks in our family. Uh, One of the walks that I don't enjoy is walking our dog. Uh, I just don't enjoy our dog. I mean, I I hate to say some of your dog people, I get it. I'm a dog person too, but this dog is just kind of a terror. Uh, Kids love him. Wife loves him. I'm here. (laughs) When I walk my dog, if there was no leash, that dog is just gone. I mean, if we let him outside without a leash, he just runs off. And then we're out there yelling. Our neighbors can probably hear us yelling, you know, three blocks away for the dog to come back. It's just a daily occurrence. If we walk him with a leash, you know what he does? He, he tugs. He pulls. He, he's dragging us around. You know, we're having to yank on the leash, pull him back, teach him how to walk with us. But it seems futile because every time we go out, it's just like he's, and if he sees a squirrel, man, it's, it's you're done. Or a cat. Oh, man. He's going to drag you anywhere. He wants to know there's a difference between walking a dog and, uh, and then, you guys, this is good marriage advice. There's a difference between walking your dog and walking with your spouse. Walking with your spouse is enjoyable. It's something that you do together. There's a proximity. There's a closeness. There's an intimacy. There's a togetherness in it where you walk side by side, step in step. And maybe like my wife and I do, even at times just hold hands. I'm more of a hand holder than she is, but we can even hold hands and walk. And it's like we come to a point in the road where we have to decide, are we going to go left or are we going right? It's almost like we don't even have to use words. We can just, some of us, one of us can just kind of nudge the other and we'll just make a turn and we'll just keep going and keep enjoying the walk. There's a huge difference between the two. Enoch walked with God in the same way that I love to walk with my spouse. Together, in proximity and closeness and intimacy. Sensing the gentle nudges. Enjoying the conversation. Day in and day out committed to one another. This was the kind of walking Enoch did with God. If you turn in your Bibles, all the way to the other end of Hebrews chapter 11, we actually get a little more detail about Enoch. This is our kind of hall of faith, hall of fame of faith chapter in our New Testament. And turn over there, I want to read to you a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 11 about Enoch. Uh, And I'm actually really grateful because in our preparation, Pastor Andrew pointed this out to me, that there is a practical framework in Enoch's uh, story in Hebrews 11 uh, to help us know how to walk with God. So I'll share that with you after I read it. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it's impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's five things here that is said of Enoch that help us learn how to walk with God. And this is the reality that God desires for every Christian. Walking with God is not an option when you know Jesus. It's not a have to either. It's a get to. And so here's what it looks like for Enoch. Walking with God first is living by faith. You can't walk with God without 
faith. Faith simply meaning trust. You trust God with your life. You come to hold your own life with open hands and leave it in the hands of the Almighty God. Have you come to not rely on yourself for salvation, but to rely on the grace of God who gives freely to all who would come to him in faith? Have you put faith in Jesus for salvation? Do you live by faith? This is how do you walk with God. You have to start by faith. You cannot work your way into walking with God. You cannot work your way into intimacy with God. It must come by faith. Second, walking with God is living a life pleasing to God. So like my dog, are are you trying to drag God in the direction that you want to go? Or are you content to stay by his side and follow his lead? Is your life open to God's inspection? Is your life open to God's command? Is your life reflective of obedience to what God says? And when, if, God forbid, you fall into sin, how quickly do you return to him? Walking with God is living a life pleasing to him. Walking with God is drawing near to God. Drawing near to God. It's building the disciplines that align our hearts and lives with God. Our connect groups have been studying spiritual disciplines for this whole fall semester. If you're not in one, you need to be in a connect group and meet some people and get to know, especially the idea of spiritual disciplines. In January, we're moving on to the next theme. But if you haven't already signed up for a Christian formation class at Moberly, you need to get get on that train because it's heading towards a course on spiritual disciplines, which is kind of a deep dive in building the kind of life that aligns yourself with God. The God who first came toward you, you can now align your life with him through things like spiritual disciplines. So we draw near to God. I love how James says this in the New Testament. You draw near to God, God draws near to you. So walking with God is drawing near to God. Walking with God is believing God exists. Now, if you struggle with the other ones, I know you got this one, right? I mean, you're here at church on a Sunday morning and you're going, I believe God exists. I mean, that's easy. Nailed it. I'm not so sure. I was uh, struck by a reading this summer as I spent a lot of time in the Psalms when I read Psalm 14. Verse 1 of Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And for most of my life, I've read that and I've thought, atheists, those fools, no offense if you're an atheist in the room. But in my pride, that's what I thought. And it struck me that even I myself as a Christian have the propensity, the tendency to go moments, hours, days even without acknowledging the reality of God in my life. But I have the tendency to kind of move forward at my own pace. I have the tendency to take my own direction. I have the tendency to get bogged down in what's right in front of me on my to-do list and completely forget that God is with me and in me and real. Do you ever fall into that? Believe God exists. That's walking with him. It's growing in awareness every day to the point that you recognize that you can't even take a breath 
without gratitude for God who gives life? Do you walk with God by believing he exists? Finally, walking with God is believing he rewards those who seek him. And to seek him, this verb is is a, a verb that implies that we seek. We also continue to seek, which is a great echo of Genesis chapter 5 when the writer of Genesis says that Enoch walked with God. He uses an intensive verb form for the verb walked, which means that Enoch walked habitually and continually with God, that he never gave up. Now, some say for 300 years, Enoch walked with God. Maybe even for the 65 years before Methuselah was born, Enoch could have been walking with God even then. But the point is not that he just had a walk with God. The point is that he intentionally moved toward God to walk with him every moment of his life. The defining difference in Enoch's life was his desire to walk with God. We had a friend in South Dakota from our church planting days. In fact, maybe our best friend lost her father this week. And uh, on Saturday, we tuned in online to part of the, the service that they were having for him in North Dakota. And for an hour and a half, person after person after person walked up in front of a congregation of people and gave testimony to the fact that this man loved Jesus more than anything else. That this man wanted more than anything else to honor God with his life. I wonder what people would say about us. I wonder how long people would go giving testimony of our walk with God. God rewards those who seek him and continually and persistently, habitually, constantly seek him, walk with him. After 300 years, even despite spiritual opposition, even despite maybe being uh, the one who stood alone in the face of all of his peers and family, Enoch stayed faithful. I kind of even wonder if uh, Noah, several generations later, who also faced opposition when God called him to build the ark, and people jeered at him. They made fun of him. How could you? It's not even it's not even raining. What are you doing building a boat? I wonder if he thought about his great-grandfather, Enoch, who was faithful to the end, who despite standing alone, walked with God. Maybe that encouraged Noah in his task. Walking with God means believing that God rewards those who seek him. And Enoch, his life ended with, a reward of an incredible grace. The same is true for us. Now, we will not disappear as Enoch did, but death doesn't have to be the story of our lives. Whatever you're facing, the encouragement today is to keep on seeking God. Whatever challenge you face, whatever obstacle you face, whatever discouragement you face, whatever grief you face, can I just encourage you, keep on seeking God and you too will be rewarded with an incredible grace. Let me remind you of the New Testament book of Romans in chapter 6, verse 23, which says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the grace of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God's grace is available to you as you walk with him. Now, God taking Enoch means Enoch didn't die. 
It's a contrast to all those who had gone before him. It's the same word that is used when a man takes a wife or when God took the man in Genesis chapter 2 and placed him in the garden to give him this occupation and this life with God. God takes us to establish a relationship with us. This is what God does with Enoch. He takes him so that he can establish his eternal relationship with him, which is what God sets out to do with every person who has ever lived. And we see this beginning at the end of chapter 5 of Genesis, where God used the lineage of people to prove his power over death, that death doesn't have to be the end of your story. Death doesn't have to have the final word. If you look at verse 25 and following, you'll see Methuselah, the longest living human, again, reminding us that no one can live forever on his own. Methuselah then fathers Lamech, a a totally different Lamech from chapter 4, by the way, the one who kind of was maybe the quintessential rebel from God, multiple wives murdering tons of people. This Lamech was a beacon of hope to humanity because he fathers Noah, whose name carries with him hope. Lamech says as he names Noah, that there's hope of relief, that Noah would bring comfort to the people despite the curse of sin. Now, I like how Abe Caravilla, who was just here several weeks ago preaching, he writes this in his commentary on Genesis, that Lamech's longing looks backward to the root cause of man's pain and grief and labor, but also forwards to Noah, who he hopes will bring rest. Ultimately, his confidence is in God alone who can provide the release. So just as God provided Enoch a rescue from death as judgment, he also gives Noah and his family a rescue from death as judgment in the form of a boat. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks, but these are only foreshadowings of the ultimate rescue from death. Another biblical genealogy, the ones that we kind of skim over and skip over, is Luke chapter 3 in our New Testament, which names Noah, also Adam, also Shem, Noah's son, and 65 generations of other names, finally to another descendant who would not just avoid death, but who would submit willingly to death, death on behalf of all mankind, taking on himself the punishment for the sins of every human, descending into the grave to defeat death once and for all by being resurrected, which means that rescue from death and the hope of resurrection are even more certain than death itself for anyone who would put faith in not only Noah's son, but God's son, Jesus Christ. See, Lamech was right. But it wasn't Noah who accomplished relief. It was the one who came from Noah who accomplished relief from the curse of sin from us all, who made life eternal possible when death seems like it's the only option. Faith in Jesus is the only way to a consequential life 
both now and for eternity. A life lived by walking with God in restored relationship to Him toward the new creation that is coming. Let me end with this quote from C.S. Lewis, who had this in mind when he wrote Mere Christianity. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. They all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So the question is, what is the aim of your life? How will you use your dash? Will you walk with God? That's the invitation. Now, there's so much personal application here. There's so many ways you could take this and, and God could lead you to grow and deepen your faith, to walk with Him more on a daily basis, to deepen your relationship with Him. But I want to point us to a corporate application today. This is a large church, and sometimes you may not know all the inner workings of what's happening in the families around you, but I just want to acknowledge that this last week has been a unique season in the life of our church. And when we talk about death, this is a reality that many families in our church are facing. That not only have there been several people, several faithful saints who walked with God every day of their life from this church who have passed on to eternity, but also this is just a holiday season where old griefs can kind of be resurfaced and come back afresh. Can we just acknowledge as a church that we stand on the shoulders of many who have walked with God in front of us? That we wouldn't be here in this way if it wasn't for many of these people. But can we also just be a church together who holds one another up in grief? As loss is kind of a regular part of our church life in the last couple of weeks, there's people around you, probably even in the seats near you, who have experienced some sort of loss or have grief stirred back up in their lives again. We can hold each other up in prayer. Hold each other up to the God who sees, the God who understands, the God who has compassion on you, the God who gives eternal life. I'd love to just end today in a time of corporate prayer where we recognize that reality, but also commit to carrying the baton that those who have gone before us have handed us. Just like Enoch, that we would walk with God as we walk with each other through times of grief and loss. So would you bow your head and close your eyes and if there's someone near you that you know are going through loss, maybe you can just stretch out a hand and touch their shoulder. And you, you ought to know there's someone around you, whether you know them or not. Maybe you're new here and you've experienced loss and you go, no one knows me or what I'm going through. Can I just tell you, God sees, God knows. And this is a place where you can find community and rest and hope 
even in the midst of loss. But would you just join me silently in this prayer together? God, you are so good to us that though death is a reality we all face, you are the God who gives life and you give it freely and graciously and abundantly to all who would come to you by faith. God, may people come to faith today to experience new life that comes only through Jesus Christ. For those in the room and around our church family who are grieving right now, Lord, would you bring your comfort, make it palpable in their lives. God, may the Holy Spirit, who is your comforter, rest upon them and give them peace. Raise up men and women around them to hold them up in times of loss, to encourage them to continue walking with you. God, God, you make the most meaning out of our lives. And even in death, God, you can make meaning, consequence. You can have our lives matter. God, may the story of Enoch inspire us to daily commit our lives to walking with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.